When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest Jalapenos on Your Eyeballs edition. It's Wednesday, June 22nd, 2016. On today's show, Finding Dory is the sequel to the universally beloved Finding Nemo. As such, the bar is set very high. Is it impossibly high? Did it clear it? We will discuss. And then Unreal is a fictional drama. It's on the Lifetime Network, and it takes us behind the scenes of a Bachelor-type reality show. And finally, Carpool Karaoke, in which James Corden of The Late Late Show drives around LA with celebs singing songs. Joining me today is Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hello, Steven. And I should say that um, uh, Julia Turner is on a uh, vacation right now, so we have Laura Bennett, you're a senior editor for culture at Slate.com. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, Dana, before we proceed, do we have uh, business to attend to? We do, Steve. We have three exciting bits of business, all live Slate-related shows that are coming up in the near future. Uh, on June 29th in Washington, D.C., this is a really exciting grouping. We have Katie Waldman, our words writer, I guess you'd call her. She's our writer-writer. I just think of her as like the most languagey writer at Slate. Jamel Bowie, our political correspondent, and Christina Catarucci, who is a blogger for Double X. And what they're all going to do with the audience is host a live viewing of Alexander Payne's election, which is just such a perfect choice for the, the moment, the historical and political moment we're in, that film, I think, especially given that people are constantly comparing Hillary Clinton to Tracy Flick, the sort of over-earnest heroine that Reese Witherspoon plays in that movie. I'm not sure if they're going to do stop and start or if they're going to show the whole thing and then talk about it after, but I, for one, would love to sit down and watch election with those those guys. So that's on June 29th in Washington, D.C. Also in D.C., the Political Gab Fest, our sister podcast, is having a live show on July 13th. And our own Culture Gab Fest, our beloved selves, are having a show August 4th at The Mount, which is Edith Wharton's residence in Lenox, Massachusetts. So uh, now that you know the dates, if you want to know more about getting tickets and the times and other options for those events, you can go to slate.com slash live. And that's it for our business. Back to the show. Thanks, Dana. All right. Well, Finding Dory, Dana, I have to ask you right off the bat, would you say Finding Nemo is maybe the most universally beloved film our lifetime or at least recent memory? I mean, I, I don't know what, I haven't polled every Pixar fan to know what their favorite <laughs> Pixar movie is. I will I, say I'm that- asking, I'm asking you, the film critic, Dana, this isn't a poll question. But you said universally beloved, so I'm speaking for all beings, all galaxies. I, I, yes. It's a lot of responsibility all, and, on my shoulders. And all possible galaxies. <laughs> Proceed. I mean, I think you're projecting your own love. I have to say that I admire Finding Nemo, but I wouldn't even say Finding Nemo's in my top five favorite Pixar movies, not because of any inherent flaws in Finding Nemo. It's a wonderfully realized piece of, of animation, but it just it never really penetrated me to the heart the way I guess I would say mm-hmm. all three of the Toy Story movies did. Did, Ratatouille did, Wally did. But right. you know, that's that's my own list. And with Pixar, the bar is set pretty high because there's only a couple mm-hmm. of their movies that, you know, that fall anywhere short of great. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. You've blown a hole in this segment already right from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> well done. All I'd right. like to take your part take apart your premise and see where you go. Uh, great. I love it when you take apart my premise. Finding Dory is the sequel to Finding Nemo, the most universally beloved movie of our lifetime. It comes via the 
great Pixar apparatus. It's directed by Andrew Stanton and Angus McLean. Nemo has returned to his reef. Now it's Dory who must journey, journey forth in this instance in search of her long-lost parents. We get Dory's backstory as a gentle fable of being alternately abled, and we get, of course, a brisk set of chases in the present tense. Of course, Dory is voiced by Ellen DeGeneres. It's on its way to hoovering up all the money in the world, so um, one ought to have an opinion about it. I think let's listen to a clip. My family! I remember my family! They're out there somewhere. Have to find them. Guys, you gotta help me. Guys! Guys, hello? Guys, where are you? Hello? Dory! Oh! Where did you go? You were the one to go. My parents. I remembered them. Wait, what did you remember? I remember them, my mom, my dad. I have a family. They don't know where I am. Let's go. Dory, we have to go. No, no, this is crazy. Where exactly are you trying to go? To the to the gym of the uh, Baltic. The Jewel of Morro Bay, California. Yes. No, Dory, California's all the way across the ocean. Then we better get going. How come every time we're on the edge of this reef, one of us is trying to leave? For once, can't we just enjoy the view? How can you be talking about the view when I remembered my family? No, no! We've done our ocean travels. That part of our lives is over. The only reason to travel in the first place is so you don't have to travel ever again. All right, Laura, let me start with you. Would you say that um, Finding Nemo is maybe the most universally beloved movie of our <laughs> lifetime? Oh, that's a very good question. I also can't speak on behalf of all uh, galaxies and humans, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with Dana on this. Finding Nemo is not... Laura Bennett's most beloved Pixar movie of all time. It's an enormously charming movie. And Finding Dory is also an enormously charming movie. I love movie. how Steve is going to project his, <laughs> yeah. his opinion right. of Finding Nemo onto all galaxy <laughs> right. occupants. I wonder but how will Steve not feels about himself. Finding Nemo. Right. I, I, I don't think Finding Nemo is a better movie than Ratatouille or um, fill in the blank, Dana. What was the other one you mentioned? Wally and the Toy Story movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, no. I, I just think it's probably of... The movies of my lifetime, it's it's got to be, I just think it's the most universally beloved. You can't decide that empirically, so I'm not asking one to, anyone to pull the galaxy. But anyway, whatever. The bar is set very high. Laura, what did you think of this movie? The bar is indeed set very high. And I had read Dana's review going into the movie, and I was prepared to have my socks duly knocked off from moment one. Finding Dory is a charm offensive. It is adorable. It is inventive. The one thing is that, you know, I'd say for the first half hour or so, I felt so, you know, strapped to the tracks of the Pixar formula that I was having trouble really appreciating it. It really, I mean, it, it, it feels like a real sort of almost scene by scene retread of Finding Nemo in the in the sort of opening scenes of the movie. And, you know, little fish alone in the big sea, fending off hostile marine life, relying on the kindness of amphibious strangers. It just felt so familiar and it was nice to be back in the presence of these characters. But uh, it also, you know, I actually had watched Finding Nemo the night before. So it was kind of an interesting experience to see them. I had rewatched Finding Nemo to see them continuously because you just feel, you know, why are you going on another journey? You just got back from your other journey. It's sort of unbelievable that they would embark on this exhausting trip yet again. That being said, once they got to – I don't want to give away any huge spoilers here. But once we sort of realized that Dory had grown up in – an aquarium in a marine life institute. And it reminded me a little bit of, you know, the way Toy Story 3 came to life when the kids got to, when the toys got to daycare, where Pixar could really introduce a whole new troop of toys. And the delight was in watching these little creatures outsmart this hulking human system. Uh, Similarly, there was just so much ingenuity in rendering the whole micro world of the marine life institute. And the new characters that we met at that point, like Hank the octopus, who is an absolute standout, just that was the moment when the switch sort of flipped and I felt like I was seeing a totally new movie and that was sort of sequel making at its best. Mm. Dana, as a Finding Nemo skeptic, what did you make of this uh, (laughs) sequel? Steve is really on his high horse about everyone's opinion of Finding Nemo. (laughs) As presumably you can't get into his house until you fill out a questionnaire about how you feel about Finding Nemo. Uh, You know, what I actually respected about this movie and why I gave it such a glowing review, in spite of the fact, Laura, that I agree with you that it's it's formulaic and in some ways follows, especially at the very beginning and the very end, beat for beat, the trajectory of its predecessor, is that 
I actually think that Dory, for one thing, was the most interesting and sweetest character in Finding Nemo. She was a side character, a crucial side character, but a side character nonetheless. Here she's the center. And for the first time, Dory's short-term memory loss problems, which were essentially a source of comic relief in the butt of jokes, gentle jokes, but jokes in the first movie, have become an actual kind of disability or a differently abled situation that she has to be brought up to deal with by her parents. And you see that from the very first scene in which baby Dory is being taught by her parents these different mnemonics and mantras and ways to make herself remember where she lives, who her parents are. And you kind of realize all of a sudden, wait, this actually actually is a movie, the same way that Finding Nemo was a movie about parenting as much as it was a movie about a little boy fish getting lost. This is as much a movie about bringing up a child with different abilities in such a way that they can function in the world as it is the story of Dory getting lost. And in that mm-hmm. sense, I think it, it went deeper. And it did not do it. I disagree with a couple of critics who have said that it did it in a ham-handed way. I think it does it in such a, a subtle way that a child watching it would completely and intuitively grasp, oh, Dory is different. And how is she going to work with that difference to, to conquer the obstacles that she faces mm-hmm. in the movie? Right. So, I mean, I thought the, the the word, Laura, that you used that I found interesting was exhausting because there is something about the format of a large quest whose, you know, MacGuffin were given in the first 10 minutes, you know, of a major blockbuster film um, that then requires um, smaller tasks in order to complete it. So there's problem, solution, task completion, move forward as a plot engine for a lot of Pixar movies. And furthermore, this one had the burden of wanting to please the nostalgia yearning for more of Finding Nemo um, in the audience. And so it felt almost more formulaic. But then again, Pixar is Pixar, right? I mean, anything under the aegis of John Lasseter finds the humanity in the formula and in the characters and makes it somehow emotionally real. And I do think they did it again. I'm less convinced Dana than you are that it's not somewhat ham-handed and maybe was added on as a somewhat later ingredient after the obligation to produce a commercially pleasing sequel to the original um once that was accomplished you know they needed it and deepened it by putting in this uh disability story or alter you know i mean it really does push in a way that i don't find politically correct the idea that this is a kind of alternative ability for dory and they're just so good at it that it's you know it is a wonderful movie i did occasionally find it exhausting i really i felt as though getting from point a to point b drives so much of the story the substance of the story simply getting an aquatic creature from water environment to water environment in order to accomplish x after a while, I felt like it was a little bit of a sweat act, as they used to call it. You know, it just felt like work on everybody's part, including mine. But, um, Laura, how did you react to the um, to the disability fable at the heart of the film? You know, it's interesting. I, I mean, I agree with everything you were just saying. The way sort of plunking these familiar, deeply likable characters into a kind of, you know, narrative aquarium in which outcomes are circumscribed and storylines loop and you ride on the current on a turtle in the current to wherever you need to go, you know, and everyone who's lost always gets found that that's inevitably going to be exhausting. And as much as I liked the sort of disability messaging and found that was really novel and moving, it's, you know, it's inevitable that Dory's impairment inevitably, you know, highlights this feeling of of sort of this, this as a sweat act, a sort of feeling of redundancy because the film is quite literally pressing reset over and over, forcing her to endure the same fears and emotions on loop. It's hard not to feel exhausted by that. You know, there's so much finding Dory and finding Dory. Uh, she gets lost every few moments. And I thought they really did hand, it, that it was the, the way they handled the, the disability storyline was heavy handed. You know, it was um, it wasn't uh, subtle, if you will, but it was new for Pixar, and they did it a way that, in a way that I can imagine, really sort of speaking to to the young viewers. And I completely disagree. Sort of I completely disagree with Steve that it was tacked on. It's it's integral to the first scene of the movie and the setup of her being trained as a child by her parents, and it's integral to the resolution of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess no, I also I... disagree with it being ham handed, but I guess everybody has a different kind of ham threshold. Um, but I would agree that the middle section that is basically made up of one increasingly crazy chase after another through the aquarium. While it's very adrenaline rushing and fun and children will love it and I can see why it made gobs of money because I think children of all ages will love this movie. 
I do agree that that was a bit more softly plotted than Finding Nemo and, and maybe a bit overfamiliar. But all the great sight gags, you know, even in the scene that you might have expected the most, there were new ways to work in sight gags, especially involving this incredible Hank the Octopus character, who I think is going to be the big fan favorite to emerge from this, from this movie. He is voiced by Ed O'Neill, um, and he's sort of a misanthropic Essentially sort of an octopus hermit who, or septopus because he's lost one of his tentacles in, in some past tragedy that he's still bitter about. And all he wants to do is withdraw from the, from the world and be sent off to some, this other aquarium in Cleveland where he could just be left alone in a tank. And so it's also a story about him being brought out of his shell, as it were, not that octopuses have shells, by Dory and by her kind of innocent openness to experience. So all these scenes, because as we know, octopuses can survive out of water for short times, right? There's frequently stories in the news about octopuses escaping from their aquarium and sliding across the floor back to the ocean. And so they get a lot of really funny mileage out of that. And also his camouflage, just incredible. And if you do see this, stay for the whole credit sequence, as you should always do with Pixar anyway. But there's some really, really good Hank camouflage jokes. And at the very, very end, I won't give it away, but there's a pop-up by one of my favorite non-speaking but utterly sweet and funny animal characters in the movie as well. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, the movie is Finding Dory. It's uh, it's it's ubiquitous. Uh, if you see it and want to decide this argument for us, come to facebook.com slash culture fest. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, moving on. Unreal is a fictional drama on the Lifetime Network. It takes us behind the scenes of a Bachelor-type reality show called Everlasting. It focuses in on the stories of Rachel and Quinn, the ethically challenged women who must turn a spectacle of cruelty into a ratings bonanza by goading fragile women into confession catfights, possibly nervous breakdowns, and even possibly suicide. Season two is now upon us. It's a critical darling we decided to discuss. Uh, Joining us to do that is Aisha Harris. Aisha, you're a slate writer, I should say, Aisha Harris. Aisha, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Aisha, um, it should be said that you're a big fan of the show, an unreal completist. You've also just published an interview that you did with a former Bachelor contestant about race in the context of this kind of a reality TV show. Why don't you go ahead and set up the clip for us? Uh, You're far more qualified to do it than I am. Uh, Sure. So in this clip uh, in particular that we're about to hear, Quinn and Rachel are both pitching the idea of having a Black Bachelor to the executive uh, producers of the network, and they're trying to explain why this is a good idea for ratings. And also, just to keep it from being confusing, you're going to hear sort of two layers of conversation in this. The conversation between Quinn and the exec, and then you, you see him online watching a clip of this Black football player. He's Black. Yeah, he's the first Black Bachelor. No, he's not that Black. All right, Gary, he's like uh, football black. I know who he is. All right, I'm looking at him right now. He's black. Well, and how does it feel to be finally beating the Eagles, given your well-known beef with Titus Washington? Really? That's your question? Well, Titus said... Who cares about what Titus said? What about the scandal? He called that reporter a bitch on TV. I just did out there? Bitch, please. I'm out of here, man. Scaring the hell out of her. Looks like he's going to hit her right there on ESPN. Break her. This is your idea of a love interest? Yeah, okay, first of all, Gary, all right, he didn't call her a bitch. He said, bitch, please, which is a term of endearment. I mean, I say it to Rachel all the time. Before getting into the, you know, the subject of race and um, reality TV and this depiction of reality TV, I I hear something in that clip that I find in the show, which I uh, like enormously, but I'm not fully caught up on, um, which is that it's a classic satire about the capacity for human unfeeling and cruelty that itself occasionally feels like the thing that it's satirizing. And similarly, in that clip, it's clearly satirizing television executives' casual racism, but may also be playing with fire a little bit too, or maybe indulging in it for humor's sake as well. Do you ever find the show, I guess what I'm saying is the pungency of the show, which is very true. It's a show made by people who know this world intimately. The um, very real pungency of the show comes from it 
sampling from the radioactivity of the thing that it is itself about. Does that ever cross a line for you? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, and I think it is a really tricky thing to try for a show to do. Um, I do think that Unreal, unlike many other um, shows and, and films that, that do this sort of satire, has a bit of a better handle on the way of not to make it go too far. Um, because I do I do know that like the things that they say, as, as racist and terrible as they, they are, I've I've interviewed people. I, I have friends who are in the business, and that sort of casual racism is just par for the course um, at times, and and it just kind of slips by. I do think though that having we do get the the side of of Darius, the black football player, though, um, and and we do sort of get a little bit of nuance. And we I think in these first three episodes um, that have aired so far, you get the hint that he's in on it, like he knows what's going on. And I think that sort of helps keep it from getting too far into this, like, we're going to indulge in this and not really comment upon it in a way that is interesting. Yeah, you know, I agree with what Aisha just said. I think part of what I like so much about this show is, and I will say at this point, I guess I am sort of copping to this, but I'm not ashamed of it, that I'm a Bachelor watcher also, a proud Bachelor watcher. Uh, I love The Bachelor. I think it is a uh, fascinating petri dish of unnatural human circumstances, and it's amazing Agree. to watch. Um, I think the way this, the way Unreal handles race is the way it, sh- it shows you how the show at once sort of gins up conflict and dissolves context. So it wants discord among black and white contestants. Um, you know, it wants the girl in the Confederate flag bikini. It wants the Black Lives Matter activist. And just to clarify, these are two contestants who are cast on this season of Everlasting, which is the Bachelor-like show uh, within Unreal. But it doesn't really want to make viewers uncomfortable. It doesn't want to force them to interrogate their own beliefs. It wants to pretend that all its discord is sort of personality-driven. The Bachelor does this. It psychotically ignores systemic questions and cultural biases. You know, any problem with roots more tangled than these girls don't like each other. This girl's the bitch. This girl's the the good girl. She's the wifey. She's the whatever. Um, and you get – and this might be common knowledge, but it's kind of the legend of – the Bachelor's history with, with race is so complicated because – there's always a black contestant, whether it's The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, and they're almost always eliminated very early on in the season. But there's she, never been a black bachelor. There's though. never been a, been a black bachelor or a black, black bachelorette. There's never been a protagonist who's black. But there's always kind of like in a tokenistic way, there is always one or a few black contestants and they never make it very far. Do they tend um, to be the villainesses? Do they tend to be put in that no, role? but it, sometimes. So there is – and Aisha, I would love to hear you talk to this because Aisha interviewed a former contestant, a woman named Marshana who was on – I think it was season, season 12. Yeah, season 12. Um, and she spoke a little bit about how accurately – how you know effective a job Unreal does of really showing you how cynical the manipulations are, you know, racially on this show and what it feels like to be the one black contestant on the show. Yeah, I mean, she, 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 like myself, had only at that point watched the first two episodes, and and so I think she, her, her point of view was that. In terms of the way the manipulation happens behind the scenes, it's very realistic. And the the way that they try to provoke these fights between the women or the or bring up these terrible instances from their past to to ignite some sort of conflict on on screen is is very realistic. What I did find interesting is that she found other aspects of it a little too much, particularly the Black Lives Activist Matter character. She felt as though it was just a little too like hammering at home, um, a little too on the nose um, in its depiction, and also like the the aspect of of the football player. Um, one of her biggest critiques was the fact that like this, well, one that this is like a a football player and not just some rando like because all the other white bachelor and bachelorettes have been like businessmen, businessmen or like playboy like you know playboys who like weren't famous like they were just happened to be rich and wealthy and this was a football player and it kind of plays into these stereotypes of that's how you make it in in life although to some extent i i would slightly disagree with that argument just because i do think that that's like part of what unreal is trying to do is that it's like say like 
I think it's critiquing the idea that black people can only be famous for being rappers or athletes. Exactly, exactly. And then she also had a problem, which I also, which I more so agree with, which is that the fact that this football player also like had his like his homie, his best friend, like it felt very entouragey in a way that like it's and and, like the partying and she was like it just felt like Unreal itself isn't necessarily critiquing. It, that they're seeming to play into these I, these same stereotypes in a way that speaks to sort of what you were bringing up the first question mm-hmm. you asked Steve, which is like, where does it where does it cross the line? And maybe that is a part a part of it um, that Marshana mentioned um, of the like sort of having your homeboy with you. That's a little bit crossing the line there. I will mm-hmm. say the, the the homeboy plot fits into a, a, what seems to be another ongoing theme of the show that doesn't have to do with race, which has to do with gender, right? right? In that the, the, that um, I forget his name, Romeo, the sidekick of of the football player, it's it, he and the football player are sort of seduced by the white former producer of the show, played by Craig Bierko, who has now become this kind of I don't know what you call him, like an Iron Man. You know, he's now into men's, men's liberation yeah. and going to Patagonia to hunt wild boar or something like that. And so they kind of get folded up into this bro narrative with him. And I think one of the most interesting things about the show and my favorite relationship on the show is between Quinn and Rachel, right? The two female producers who are struggling for power behind the scenes. Now we've also got the two of them pitted against this man who's trying to come back and seize his empire again. And so I love some of those moments where, you know, it's essentially a gender, a gendered battle as well as a racialized one. Yeah, especially like in the second, I think it's the second episode when they bring in the new guy after uh, Rachel tries to like go behind Quinn's back so that she can become the, like, the top producer again because Quinn keeps like interfering with her role as the executive producer. And so she talks to, I think, the network executive and is like, there's a lot going on between these two and I don't think they're getting the job done. And she's trying to imply that she should have the job, but then he brings in this- Coleman is his name. Who is like this like 27-year-old white guy. And she's like- well, there we go. And then, of course, they have a love affair. Oh, spoiler alert! If you haven't watched the last night, I mean, this is like Grey's Anatomy. Like they're all right. going to hook up. Yeah. At some point. Well, that's something though that I have to say. I think this show does so well. I mean, as I think I've said before on many episodes, I'm never a person who really goes for soap opera type structures of long running narratives. I kind of like, you know, like you're the worst, where there's just a little poppable candy treat and it, it, it's it's self sufficient to itself each time. This show is not that way. It, it has lots of kind of plot tendrils that you need to follow across and through the season. But in a way that I suspect is similar to Scandal, although I haven't watched that much of Scandal, it manages to be smart about all kinds of social issues while also just being completely delectable finger food TV. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Can I ask a question? This is a meta outside of of Unreal itself, although it encompasses it. This is a question about The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, which – I know you, Laura, are a big follower of. To my amazement, I've always loved this odd fact about Steve. He and his wife also are addicted to, is it The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, Steve, or just one of the two? It was both back in the day. You know, my um, as a capstone to her first pregnancy, her water broke as we were finishing uh, up watching an episode of The Bachelorette. And um, I don't know that we've ever returned to it with quite the same avidity since having kids, but we have tuned into a couple of the big seasons since. Uh, I mean, it's just, I don't i don't know. It's just impossible not to watch, right? I mean... What about you, Aisha? You also watch those shows independently of liking Unreal? No, I mean, I, I think I've maybe watched a handful of episodes, like eight, seven or eight years ago when I was in college because my roommates were obsessed with it. I haven't watched it since... I did watch, and, and it's funny because Marshana, the the Bachelor contestant or the Bachelor contestant that I interviewed, she she mentioned that like one of the things her friends asked her was like, "Why are you going on the Bachelor? Like, you know, the black girls never never get far. Why don't you go on Flavor of Love?" And she's like, "I'm not gonna go on Flavor of Love, but like Flavor of Love is a show I watch." Uh, <laughs> I, and then all the like, I think there are at least like two or three spinoffs, like I Love New York, and that was like a dark time when like. I watched a lot of VH1 terrible reality <laughs> shows. Um, but yeah, in general, I don't really watch too many. I, I don't watch any dating shows now, but I love Unreal nonetheless. Like you, uh, As long as you have like a general knowledge of what it is, and that's one of the great things about the show is that like you don't have to watch them at all. Like my boyfriend loves it. He's never watched The Bachelor. Yeah, that's the like, case with me too. That's yeah. the case with me too. No idea about, about what the appeal of those shows is. But that was just my setup question, seeing what you all's experience was with those reality shows to ask – just explain the appeal. Thumbnail sketch of the appeal. Is it primarily campy? Are you laughing at the show? Are you looking at, you know, things like what we're talking about?
talking about an Unreal, sort of like the unconscious of cult- the culture that comes bubbling up? Is it trashy fun? Like, why? Why Why is it so good? Of The Bachelor? <laughs> yeah, these yeah. Ki- these kinds of shows. Not the parodies of them, but the shows themselves. Oh. Well, I think, I mean, I just used this this phrase a few minutes ago, but I will say it again because um, because it, it feels true to me that The Bachelor is a petri dish of unnatural human circumstances. People are thrust into this house. They uh, have their cell phones taken away. They're forced to compete for the the synthetic love of this like objectively banal human being. And the emotions they are feeling are, are real. I mean, it's not love, but yeah. it's competition and lust and everything is so engineered and so ginned up and so effectively wrought that you're not people aren't acting i mean it's and it's mm-hmm. just fascinating yeah. to see them trapped in this cage and and it's it's also interesting to hear you guys talk about being interested in unreal having an atmospheric awareness of what the bachelor is and what it represents but my interest in this show is also procedural it's that's how they manipulate them that's how they make them cry that's it's just an it's it's so cynical and it's so delicious to see how mm-hmm. um sanctioned this cruelty is in the universe of the show and how these people get manipulated it really is mm-hmm. just like Brilliant. it really is just like a masterclass in in manipulation and 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 I feel like in a way it's also teaching me how to try try and recognize it but that's the the funny thing about watching the show is just that e- even the ones who are clearly too smart or should be too smart to be there, they find themselves. And even if they expect that they might be manipulated, they still get manipulated because like you, you, they're so good at the producers are so good at their job that it just they're sneaks up. on Always you. outfoxed. And they're just I mean, I, I, I can't get enough reading these sort of behind the scenes details, but they're, they're, they're not even allowed to go to the gym except in like 30 minute increments. They, I mean, there's this profile of Sarah Gertrude Shapiro who created Unreal in The New Yorker and she talks about how she would carry jalapenos in her pocket so that she could make herself cry (laughs) as a way to draw tears out of the contestants when they were sitting in the limo together after they'd been eliminated. That's real. That's a real detail. Well, let's Let's have that be the kind of dreary period at the end of this uh, segment. Aisha, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It was terrific. Thank you. All right, moving on. The Late Late Show stars James Corden, a jolly Brit with some serious pipes. On one segment for his show, Corden drives around L.A. with the famous person singing along to a karaoke soundtrack. Guests have included Adele and Lin-Manuel Miranda. Dana, before uh, before we play the clip, why don't you set this particular one up? Yeah, I'm glad we're starting with this clip because this was my favorite of the carpool karaoke episodes that I watched. It's, uh, it's James Corden and Adele driving around London. So they're driving on what is to us the wrong side of the road. And just the mere fact that they're displaced you know, to a different country, which is their country, makes it more interesting. But what really makes this the best one, I think, is that Adele is enormously, enormously charming and real and does not seem to be sort of staging her enjoyment of this, this ride with James Corden. So the moment we're going to hear is a moment when James Corden makes an offer, a kind of a business proposal to Adele. Let's listen. I've been thinking about the talk. Yeah. And I think, and listen, you can say no to this or just have a think about it. Right. I think you need like a hype man. Yeah. During the up numbers. Okay. Because it's an emotional night. It is emotional People are going to be, it's going to be a lot of people it's proposing my human on enough. the way home. Yeah, but I'm just saying, during the up numbers, yeah. what about a I'm up man? So then I'd come up through the floor. Oh. Uh, Dana, let's start with you. I could not hate this concept more, and I must say I have never loved anything more than I loved car- carpool karaoke. That is so great, Steve. I was uh, watching this morning and thinking that you were going to be on the side of Hank Stuber, who's the TV critic too. for the Washington Post, uh, who loathed, absolutely loathed carpool, carpool karaoke and wrote this very funny tirade against it and how nothing could be worse than to be trapped in a car with James Corden. <laughs> it's true that James Corden, if you saw him host the Tonys last week, you'll see this is a very intensely theatrical and enthusiastic president 
presence. And he really is kind of the theater geek from your high school who's just so excited to be in a car with these people. And uh, and that does seem to be a recipe for claustrophobia and irritation. But especially when the co-rider in the car seems genuinely excited and into it, it's, it's quite playful and fun. It's a little bit the idea of comedians in cars getting coffee, That's the Seinfeld exactly show. I but I like yeah. it much, much better. I think this feels much freer and sillier and less yes. artificial. Uh, Laura, I think the key word in what Dana just said is genuinely. If Corden weren't so genuine and if his genuineness didn't bring out an equivalent quality in the guests, the show would just be another one of the, you know, comedians and cars. Like, lucky you, you get to hang out with celebrities being candid, a format that I despise. I despise nothing about this. I had so much fun watching it. You know, he's a little bit like Chris Farley, too, in the old Chris Farley show segments on Saturday Night Live. Oh, and you would fun. interview a celebrity and just sort of spit and slobber all over them with ex- excitement. I, that's bad. And I think of Chris Farley, I thought of, I thought of Comedians in Cars, which is actually one of my favorite shows. So I also love Comedians in Cars for some similar reasons. But um, I also thought obviously, of of Jimmy Fallon and how Fallon is similarly a master at sort of conjuring the mood of a party in his uh, bits with celebrities. And he also, he's obviously one of the kings of the late night viral web in that he engineers these segments that are sort of built to have a second life online after his show airs. And in the games he plays with celebrities, in the you know lip syncs Fallon does with celebrities, it's a kind of role play in which you enact, here's a fun time we are all having. And if it works, viewers at home, and this is what you know good late night TV does, feel comfortable. They feel it feels familiar. It feels intimate. And Corden does this so well, but I find even less annoyingly and ingratiatingly than Jimmy Fallon does. He can more convincingly play the part of the sort of earnest schlub whose relative at this point lack of star power is part of the charm. As Dana pointed out, he's so contagiously enthusiastic. He feels like a real fan. You know, Fallon is is sort of the the golden boy protagonist himself, but Corden just seems so excited and he has a way of loosening his guests up by positioning himself as a kind of gung-ho collaborator. And so unlike the Washington Post critic, I didn't I do not find him to be, you know, overly hammy and look at me and annoying. I think he's so charming. He has, sort of has the perfect personality uh, for this exercise and he has sort of a tinge less ego than Fallon and it makes him so likable and it's the perfect kind of, you know, bottled up rapport. The, uh, to make this work. I just think it's so much fun. Mm-hmm. All right. I think a segment like this works best if we hear um, a lot of the... Um uh, a lot of the thing itself. So why don't we why don't we pick another one, Dana? Did, how about the Lin Manuel Miranda one? Or yeah, the Lin Manuel is definitely worth. I mean, I think of that as more sort of the pre Tonys. You know, that was clearly that the 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 show in which he had Lin Manuel Miranda, Audra McDonald, who else? Jesse Tyler Ferguson and Jane Krakowski, all currently appearing in shows on Broadway in his car to sing not only a couple songs from Hamilton, but a bunch of sort of old Broadway classics. Uh, it was essentially, I think, a bit of a promo for Corden's upcoming appearance on the Tonys. Um, and for that reason, it started to feel a little bit awkward at first. And there were moments where you felt you could you could feel the PR machine behind it, like, oh, we have to get into this guy's car and do this thing. But the fact is, Audra McDonald's voice is so incredible. Lin-Manuel Miranda is so just adorable and enthusiastic in everything he does and such a huge fan of, you know, the whole history of theater. And the whole thing kind of really turned into a fun, just a fun sing-along at a gay bar. I mean, it was essentially what did they not sing? They got into a Rent song, a Les Miserables song. And I don't know how much they prepped these segments or whether it really is true that all these Broadway stars know all the lyrics to and every Corden Broadway song all ever. all the lyrics to everything. That's part of what's so charming, too. I wonder about that. And, and maybe other people who saw this segment or, or who are about to listen to some of it now can, can respond as to whether they thought, you know, did these people get a cheat sheet in advance? These are the songs we might sing? Or did they all just depend on, you know, being theater geek enough to know? Actually, based on the imperfect harmonies there, I'm starting to believe it was a spontaneous sing-along, but that makes it all the more fun. (laughs) 
Okay, let me ask you, is the premise of the show, Laura Bennett, that most people, when they're driving around kind of endlessly, um, you know, and people who don't, aren't urban dwellers, such as me, need to do this all the time, um, but do we all put on music and belt it out? I mean, is it sort of like the, sh- the car is kind of like the shower in this regard, that we're all, you know, singers, we're all rock stars and singers, pop vocalists in our own minds when we're when we're in this enclosed space such as a shower or an automobile or am i the only one yes i think that's definitely part of the premise and it's also you know it's a unique um, opportunity for celebrities to sort of respond spontaneously to their own music so they're not doing choreography unless and there's one episode where Corden forces one direction to do his own choreography which is very funny but there's a the camera i think i read somewhere it's mounted somewhere on the dashboard it's very small and so it does have this feeling of you, you get the sense that their song has sort of materialized, that they're responding organically to it. They're kind of tickled by hearing their own lyrics and they're, they're, there's this lack of self-consciousness that's really appealing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree, right, Dana? I mean, it's watching someone karaoke to their own music. It's kind of a fantastic premise. And, and, and especially when it moves into others' music as well. I mean, I feel like yeah. having somebody go through their hits is one thing. But, for example, when Adele starts singing Spice Girls songs, oh, talking about tremendous. how the Spice Girls influenced her as a child, it's absolutely wonderful. Also, we should mention Adele spills coffee on herself. She yeah. snorts when she laughs. I mean, she is the most natural, down-to-earth, darling kind of cockney person. I couldn't agree more. In that moment where he first brings up, Corden first, first brings up the subject of the Spice Girls, and there's a pause, and she looks at him and says, is this a piss tape? <laughs> and I just think I want to go around for Dana. Every third thing I'm going to say to you, at least in my head from now on, is going to be, is this a piss take? <laughs> so, Steve, I have a question for you. You might be able to say that this carpool karaoke segment of the Late Late Show is analogous with the Lip Sync Battle, the, um, the show yeah. that we spoke about once, the reality show hosted by LL Cool J, in which various stars come on and they don't karaoke, but they you know, do an American Idol style performance of a song competing one against the other. I found that not as fun as this and also a little bit too long and too sticky, but I could sort of roll with the basic fun vibe of it. Whereas I think you found that show utterly loathsome and in this horrible example of self-adulating, masturbatory celebrity culture. And I mean, you <laughs> you were on a considerable soapbox about lip sync battle and how awful it was. So why is this different? I, Dana, in your trivial misapprehension of what these two things have in common, I'm allowed to indi- indulge in Hegelian dialectic. Thank you. Yavol. <laughs> 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 I know, I know. Um, what I find so refreshing about carpool karaoke is that conceptually it's not that different, but it shows you how that if things, it's not the thing itself, it's how it's delivered and in what spirit it's delivered. And I do think that that's apprehendable on the part of the viewer. I mean, you know, I understand that like poptimists and postmodernists are going to say everything is showbiz all the way down. And there's there's a kind of, you know, sophisticated cynicism about all commercial product that then excuses commercial products when they're utterly cynical and completely destroys our ability to use terms like genuine or authentic. I just don't buy that at all. I mean, a couple of the differences are, first of all, there's nothing... I don't find anything aggrandizing. First of all, there's nothing self-aggrandizing about Corden, which I'm afraid to say isn't quite true of Jimmy Fallon. I think the world of Jimmy Fallon, he's a remarkable talent. I do think he's boyish and charming. And, you know, for all I can tell, he's not some kind of a douchebag. I do think he's a showbiz performer of a different order than Corden, who I do find less implicitly aggrandizing, less conscious of his own unprepossessing charms. And secondly, the format... I don't always fall for the format of bringing people into candid situations, but there is something just smaller and more universal about singing in an automobile that works for me. Um, the other one seems to me not an opportunity for a celebrity. The lip sync battle seems to me an opportunity for a celebrity to show you once again how kind of uniquely large and charismatic they can be, whereas this one forces you to actually sing for one thing so you hear how extraordinary Adele's voice is presented to you fairly nakedly at least and it seems to me somewhat candid in a real way so I just see them as I see them as completely different in effect even though they're essentially the same thing in in nature 
I'm just realizing the next yeah. horizon in this kind of segment would be the shower cam, celebrity in the shower cam, right? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that on that thought, um, it's called Carpool Karaoke. It's very easy to find with a Google search online. Uh, it's a subset of James Corden's um, Late Late Show. Start with Adele and you won't be sorry. Exactly. Um, exactly. Uh, charming. And let us know what you thought of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse. Laura, why don't we start with you this week? It's funny. I was going to endorse this even before we mentioned it in our previous segment. But one of my favorite shows on TV, I mean, well, it's actually a web series formally, is Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. And it returned June 16th. I feel like I cannot recommend this weird little show enough. Jerry Seinfeld makes such an f- interesting foil for the comedians and famous people he has on his show. His outsized confidence somehow has a diminishing effect on other people's egos. And so you see people's sort of insecurities cast into sharp relief. Seinfeld is just bulletproof. Like he ju- he's, he's sort of unflappable and he's so oddly – comfortable in his own skin in every sort of circumstance. So you get people like past seasons, Alec Baldwin, Louis C.K. You see people crack in interesting ways under the sort of bright lights of Seinfeld's self-love. And this season we have Jim Gaffigan is on, Margaret Cho is on an upcoming episode. I just think the show is so much fun um, and I highly recommend it. Mm. Uh, Dane... Nah, what do you have? Well, as I think I told you guys when I first got back from leave, it was just one of the most exciting things about being on leave was just sort of getting to go through pretend graduate school again and be constantly cramming difficult theoretical books into my brain, which I did a lot of. And uh, I'm going to endorse one of those, which was recommended to me by our own Jody Rosen. Uh, it's called The Feminization of American Culture, and it's by Ann Douglas, who I believe is oh now— Oh, my he- God. That is the greatest fucking book an American scholar uh- <laughs> has ever written. Do you want to take over my endorsement? <laughs> no, but I mean, yes, that is such a great book. So, yeah, I'm so glad you know her, Steve. She's incredible. So um, so I want to read both of her books now, but I picked up this one in particular, The Feminization of American Culture, because it's sort of an intellectual history of the 19th century. And the 19th century is something I'm doing a lot of reading about right now, just the enormous amounts of social change that, that happened over the course of that century that was then sort of manifested in 20th century change, right? So even though this book, The Feminization of American Culture, is not precisely about feminism— I mean, in fact, it's 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 about women like Harriet Beecher Stowe and about her father, Lyman Beecher, who was a Congregationalist preacher and sort of the connection between I mean, you can help me on this, Steve, because they're big ideas, essentially sort of the connection between um, the culture of preaching, making sermons, you know, the ministerial profession and the place of women in society. And so this Mm -hmm. feminization of American culture she's talking about is not in our modern terms, some sort of girl power, awesome thing. I mean, what she's really more talking about is the sentimentalization of the female and the way that kind of Victorian culture put all of the work of feeling onto women and, interestingly, Mm -hmm. at the point that she's making, onto the clergy so that women and the clergy occupy this space where they're sort of the conscience of the country, but at the same time, they're sort of the scapegoats of the country, right? They're held in contempt by patriarchal culture, but at the same time, they are the conscience that starts to bring about things like the abolitionist movement and, you know, other kind of movements toward equality and liberation. I'm I'm summarizing this so badly. I mean, this is like, this is one of those monuments of scholarship, right, Steve? I mean, this is one of those things where Absolutely. it's like, it's, it's fine no. that this woman's only written two books, and I'm going to read the, the other book after this. It's called Terrible Honesty, and it's about Manhattan in the 1920s. But it's it's completely fine to go through life writing two books if they're two books of this Absolutely. size and heft and importance. Yeah, no, no, no. It's a cornerstone of American studies, and it should be the cornerstone of, you know, the educated person's consciousness about our own culture. It's just an unbelievable book. It's not... It's written in a window pane style. It's it's for anybody to read. It's along with like the making of the English working class, or I mean, I don't know, um, the Great War and Modern Memory. It seems to me one of the you know maximally admirable books written by a scholar for a general audience. And you, you summarized it beautifully. I mean, it's 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 and 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 by the way, we're going to relive it in this stupid fucking election that's coming. You know, a hyper insecure, masculinized, fragile ego appealing to exactly that quality in his core constituency versus a highly competent woman who's struggling to find a voice that's morally powerful but not overly feminized, unfairly being 
having that struggle foisted upon her. It, it's just going to be fascinating to watch. But anyway, yeah, it's a great book. So again, if you didn't get the title the first time, The Feminization of American Culture by Anne Douglas. Read it. Fantastic. All right. Well, um, I am going to endorse, um, uh, this is 100% courtesy of Pitchfork, which um, I think just ran an article reassessing the Joni Mitchell album, The Hissing of Summer Lawns. And for those Mitchellologists who've forgotten a little bit the progression of her career, you know, she comes out with Blue, which is maybe the greatest folk album, folk rock album of all time, kind of in the singer-songwriter confessional mode. She holds up to this day as a really as a flawless masterpiece. And then Court and Spark, which is a more electric, more commercial version of that style of songwriting, you know, huge hit helped me on it. You know, she charts big with that record. She's maybe the biggest female singer-songwriter star in the world. And then she makes a very Un, in, a, in a superficially uninterspective, very jazz-influenced record, The Hissing of Summer Lawns, released in 1975. Rolling Stone calls it something, I mean, honestly, I think uses the language, the worst album of the year, by which, in retrospect, all they meant was the kind of most unexpected turn on the part of an artist at the height of their powers. And over 30 years plus, or whatever it is now, 40 years, it's been reassessed and is regarded as one of her masterpieces and it is a terrific record and the pitchfork essay which we'll link to does a good job of describing this whole history and why it was so disesteemed and why it's been um rediscovered but it's it's just a remarkable album and one the other thing i would say also is that you know she was hugely influential to prince i mean you know he loved her music and understood that her music couldn't be feminized in that ann douglas way right i mean it's that kind of superficially feminine package in which something brilliant and ferocious often comes, you know, from a woman artist. I mean, this describes Emily Dickinson. It describes the Brontes. It describes Austin, Jane Austen. And it was among the many things we can love about Prince that he saw this quality in Joni Mitchell and had no masculine, you know, terror uh, in the face of her genius and cited it often and um, name-checked her in the do- pa- pa- uh, ballad of Dorothy Parker, my favorite of his songs. Anyway, Hissing of Summer Lawns by Joni Mitchell. Please rediscover it along with me. If I can just jump in and add that she also had a story about Prince that was wonderful that came out right after he died, which is just that she remembered, I don't know if it was because he came up at, to her afterwards, but she remembered Prince coming to her one of her concerts as a teenager and sitting up front and staring at her in adoration. And of course, how would she have known it was Prince at the time, given that I don't think he had made records? So it must have been either a story that he told her later or he went up and talked to her or something like that. But the idea of this youthful, big-eyed Prince at a Joni Mitchell con- concert sitting up front is just is so wonderful. I agree. Wonderful. All right. Well, Laura, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Dana, we know we fight like cats and dogs sometimes, but we love each other. Oh, yes. Love you like a brother, a crazy brother. (laughs) All right. Uh, Thanks, Dana. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is, of course, part of the Panoply Network. And you can check out the entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Laura Bennett and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. He bought her a Barbecues from her wind.